Good morning. Wow. Good. Everybody's awake this morning. Turn to Philippians chapter 1, please. If you were paying attention to that hymn, that's more of a kind of a closing hymn because it's a very re- reflective hymn. It's good to have a hymn like that once in a while. You know, think about your life. What am I doing for Jesus? What's my life going to add up to when it's all said and done? You know, we're not talking about more of an introspection, but it's good once in a while to take take stock of where I am with Christ, right? The reason I bring that up is because we're going to talk about that this morning. So uh, the title has a double title. <clears throat> it's uh, Christian Empathy or Only One Life to Live. We're looking at the Apostle Paul in our character studies. And uh, this is the second message on Paul. We actually just have one more left, which Lord willing we'll have at the beginning of next month. <clears throat> um, but we're going to take a uh, cue from the two times in the Bible where he is near death. Of course, you've heard of the prison epistles, and those are the ones that he wrote when he was in prison the first time um, for preaching the gospel. He didn't die then, he was released. And it's believed he then went to Spain and other points west, but then was arrested the second time and uh, wrote, uh, for example, Second Timothy. And he did, he was executed that time. Um, but as I said last week, when we look at the life of Paul, we have the advantage of having his letters. You know, some of the other characters, we just have like an episode or two in the Bible, which is good. You can learn a lot from that, but you can learn so much more from a person's letters. Particularly Paul, because he just opens his heart when he writes. Isn't that wonderful, by the way, that God does that in the word, in his Bible? You know, it's not just, you know, doctrine or just stories. He just fills it with every kind of literature you can think of. And it communicates things that you couldn't otherwise get across. Think about the deep emotions in uh, the Psalms as David just poured his heart out. You know, you're not going to do that in First Kings. It's a historical book. <clears throat> so in the New Testament, uh, Paul's epistles, probably more than any other, serve to show us the heart of a Christian. And so we're going to take a cue as Paul contemplates death in two places. Next time we'll use Second Timothy. Um, he reflects on his life. And we learn something from it about Christian character. And there's a lesson in it for us. So let's look at the passage here in Philippians 1, starting in verse 21. Well-known verse, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you. Okay. Interesting section. You won't read this in uh, most uh, people's uh, experiences near death. He's saying it's hard to decide whether to die or not. And he says, I'd actually, I think I'd prefer that. Not out of misery, but because of the joy 
of seeing his Savior face to face, of course. When he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, he doesn't mean that dying is not Christ. He just means it's even better. To live is Christ. I live by faith. I don't see him, he says. But if I die, I see him face to face. That's, that's gain. That's better. <clears throat> the thing I want to focus on, though, is um, Paul's reason for continuing to live. Uh, you might think that he would say, man, if I get out of this, I'm going to take a nice long vacation to uh, Spain, you know, or Capri or Rome or something. I know not Rome. That's where he's in prison. <laughs> but uh, he doesn't. He says, if I do, if God spares me, and he seems pretty convinced that that's going to happen, and it does. He says, it'll be to live for you. It'll be to serve you talking about the believers so um, if he's going to continue on it's going to be for others paul is saying for me to live is christ but then the application of that is living for others because that's what christ wants and that's the way christ lived such a contrast with the world's view uh, I think many of you probably heard of the 100 and thing, 101 Things to Do Before You Die. You heard of that? Anybody? Yeah, it's a best-selling book. Uh, uh, Tom's first time. Okay, you better go out and get a copy, Tom. Let, let me just read the blurb on it here. Ready? <clears throat> if you have the courage to undertake them, these 101 things will change your life. Learn to fly a plane. Go on a demonstration. Meet your idol. Milk a cow. (laughs) There are a million things to do before you die, but only 101 will change the way you live life now, like milking a cow. (laughs) 101 things to do before you die is an essential companion for anyone who wants to enjoy life as it races by. Stay in a five-star hotel. Swim with sharks. And put theory into practice. 101 things to do before you die is about testing the limits of your freedom. Taking some risks and making your dreams come true. Entertaining and graphically arresting and featuring checklists. Cards to cut out and keep with you. And journal space to keep track of your 101 things as you experience them. Milk the cow today. (laughs) This is the perfect book to help you or a loved one seize the day. Isn't that good? This, this whole bit deal of, you know, you only live once, is really, it's really gripping the nation. I'll t- tell about another one in a minute. But um, there's a little contradiction here between the world's approach and Paul's, you know, I've got one life to live. Question is, which one's right? Which one has the marble in it, you know? Let me just give you another quote. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever will save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Who's right? I think Jesus is. Notice Jesus says in that, his life, singular. Jesus is talking about your one life. 
And he says, this is what you should do with it. Lose it. Throw it away. He doesn't mean in the trash can. He means you, you lose it for my sake. Give it up for me. That's the way to live. He says, that's, you do that, you find it. You have real life. Well, now Paul would be freed. Why didn't he go swim with sharks or milk a cow? Well, we can find it from his letters, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. Because uh, Paul's living for others was not gritting his teeth, you know, and somehow, oh, you've got to do this because Jesus expects it. No, he had a heart that drove him to be like that. He had a new heart. The Paul we saw last week dragging the Christians off to prison and, and wanting to literally exterminate Christianity. That's the old Paul. God changed him. He gave him a new heart. And instead of uh, shutting his ears to the, the pleas of the believers, suddenly God reached in and touched that heart. And now he has a heart of flesh. And he has such a love for uh, the believers and for people in general that he just doesn't have enough time in the day to serve them and help them and do everything he can for others. I think that's an example to follow. That's the example of Jesus. And that's what we're going to look at. And we're going to find in the letters, as we read these, these few passages I've selected, you're going to see the heart of Paul, and in it you're going to see the heart of Christ. Because Jesus was like that. So that's why I chose the word uh, empathy, Christian empathy. Now, when we use the word empathy, we, you know, we empathize with that person. It's kind of a weak, weaker form. It's, it's a good thing. But we generally mean uh, that when someone feels something strongly, we feel it with them. Right? That's generally the meaning of the word empathy. They're, they're, they're deep in sorrow and you feel their sorrow. Or they're rejoicing and you, know, you rejoice with them. And that's good and it's even biblical. But, of course, in the Bible, it's much deeper than that. You're going to see that when we get to Paul uh, in his writings. And in, in Christ, it was much, much deeper than that. Because it wasn't just something that caused me to feel something for the other person. It, it dri- drives us to action. It's, it's more than just feeling something. It's, it's so strong that it causes us to act on behalf of that other person. You understand the difference? Praise God, that was the empathy of Christ, which, of course, is, is rooted in his deep love. You know, we're, we're so, um, I guess, hardened to the concept of hell. Even as believers, really, we really don't understand what we've escaped from because we haven't been there yet. And it's a good thing. Jesus saw us in hell, in agony, like, you know, the rich man, I am in agony in these flames. He saw us there ahead of time, praise God, and he empathized. And it grieved him to see us where we meant to, should have been. And he did something about it. It drove him to the cross where he paid the price for us so we wouldn't have to experience that. That's what I'm talking about. It drove Christ to action. Um, there's a wonderful... Uh, Prophecy in Isaiah 53. It's a phrase I think that's often misunderstood, talking about Jesus and his his empathy with us. It says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. That's talking about his empathy. People get confused and they think it's talking about the cross. You know, somehow he died for our sorrows. No, no, no. He was a man of sorrows, it says. 
uh, he, he felt what we felt deep within him. When he came to the tomb of Lazarus, he wept in a much deeper way than those around him were weeping. But he was just so moved by what he saw and the hopelessness at the grave of Lazarus that he literally cried. He wept. It moved him. Well-known verse in Mark. Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for for them because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. You see that? He didn't just kind of stand there with tears in his eyes, you know, and and, uh, boy, it's a sad situation. He did what he could. He taught them. And of course, praise God, he did more than that. He healed. And ultimately, he opened heaven for us. How's that? That's a pretty good act for someone to do for you, huh? Praise God. That's the heart of Christ. And it should be our heart. You know, but it's something that uh, we have to acquire. I'm not speaking uh, uh, from Paul's experience here. I'm still an outsider. I've had tastes of it over the years. Certainly as an elder, uh, you have to experience it as you shepherd the flock of God. But it's for all believers. It's the only way to live, really. Let's be honest. Let's think about it. I got one life to live. Is it really the best way just to live for myself the whole time? What? What's the good of that at the end? It's a waste. Jesus was wise. He was wise, man. Throw the thing away on other people. That's living. Okay, so we're going to see this uh, empathy. And really, it's rooted in the love of God uh, as it's sh- uh, shed abroad in his heart and in ours. <clears throat> so we're just, I'm going to make it real simple. We're just going to read maybe half a dozen or so passages here. I'm going to make them in order so you're not flipping all over the place in just a few books. So we're in Philippians. Make a left turn to 2 Corinthians. And let's look at this empathy of Paul that literally drove him to live for others. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians 2. <clears throat> Verse 1. <clears throat> but I determined this within myself, this is Paul writing, that I would not come again to you in sorrow. For if I make you sorrowful, then who is he who makes me glad but the one who was made sorrowful by me? And I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I came... I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. You got that? You see that? What is Paul saying? He says, my joy is the joy of all. And I'm not happy unless you're happy. That's what he's saying. When I see you guys joyful and solid in the Lord, then I'm full of joy. But when you're not like that, I'm sorrowful. I'm miserable. That's that's the empathy, you see. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears. Not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. There's the heart of Paul. There's the heart of Christ, you see. Isn't this great? 
Here's the Bible. And here's this guy pouring his heart out. God knew that. He used it to show us the heart of a believer. <clears throat> okay, now turn over to chapter 6. Not surprisingly, we're, we're getting a number of them from 2 Corinthians. You know the situation. Uh, the Corinthians had a real problem with Paul, besides having problems amongst themselves, as we're learning in the morning study. But in spite of him pouring his life out uh, for these people, People came in and started bad-mouthing Paul, and they believed it, and uh, they looked down on Paul. They criticized him. They wouldn't listen to him after all he'd done for them, and it broke his heart. It really did. Chapter 6, verse 4. So he's defending his ministry here, you know, to the Corinthians. Uh, But in all things, we commend ourselves as ministers of God. Now, listen to the list. He's describing the list of a, uh, the life of a shepherd. In much patience, in tribulations, in needs, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in fastings, by purity, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, he's saying, I'm getting attacked from every direction, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as chastened and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, now he doesn't say yet rich, notice what, yet making many rich, isn't that good? Yeah, I don't care, he says, I'm, I'm poverty stricken, that's fine, as long as you believers are rich in Christ, that's what he means, as having nothing, and yet possessing all things. Oh, Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. Now, in return for the same, I speak as to children, you also be open. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers and so on. He gets into the unequal yoke section. You see the heart of Paul? Man, he covers the gamut of emotions there. But what he ends up saying there is, uh, I love you guys. You know, I'll do anything I can for you. I'll die. I don't care. Whatever it takes. It'd be nice if you guys returned that love, you know. But whether you do or not, I'm going to love you. That's the love of God. See? Uh, Chapter 11. Another list, this is particularly now of Paul's sufferings uh, for the gospel, but the interesting thing is the way he ends it. Uh, 11.23. He's talking now about these other guys that the uh, Corinthians seem to like so much, these, these false teachers whom they have accepted and rejected Paul for. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths 
often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. You know why they did 40 stripes minus one, right? Because they felt it was a sin to go beyond 40. So they did 40 minus one. So that if it did, they threw an extra one in there, it's still 40. So we're okay. You know, can you imagine being whipped with that, those, those scourges 39 times? Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren. There's a bit of irony there because that's where he is right now with the Corinthians. In weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Wow. And you'd think the, uh, that's the worst of it. But Paul saves for him the toughest for the last. Verse 28. Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. And, and to him, that's the one that really caps it. You see, it's his, his heart burdened for the believers. And he's occupied with them night and day, wanting their good and whatever it takes to bring it about. By the way, this is the life that <laughs> Paul was, in a sense, returning to, you know, back there at the beginning of Philippians when he said, I don't know whether I want to die or live. This is living. <laughs> okay, he knew what he was doing. But to him, the, this is what it's all about, you see. Whatever it takes to get the gospel out and to shepherd the uh, sheep of God. 2 Corinthians uh, 12, 15. <clears throat> Just one verse. Paul says, And I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. Wow. That's the heart of Christ. Okay, uh, Galatians, just one verse there. Uh, chapter 4, verse 19. Here uh, he has the case of a church that uh, is lapsing into legalism, mixing faith in Christ with works. And he's distressed about it because this isn't some optional doctrine. It determines whether I'm saved or not. You don't play around with that kind of stuff. And so he is deeply troubled. And look at, listen how he explains the way he feels. Verse 19, my little children, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. Wow, is that ever graphic, huh? He's in labor, he says, like a woman giving birth. I can't relate to that. You mothers can. But he's saying, uh, I thought the labor was over, you know, when you, when you profess Christ, and now the pangs are back on me again because you seem to be slipping away from Christ. And until you're resting solely on Christ and nothing else again, I'm like a woman in labor. You see the empathy here in the heart of Paul and uh, his, his 
relating his, his feeling, the, the pain and the suffering and the agony and the struggles of the believers in his own life. Okay, well, we'll see some positive stuff here on Philippians. Philippians 2, right turn. <clears throat> this is where we were a little earlier, just a chapter later. Prison epistle. Chapter 2, verse uh, 1. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And there it is again. He says, fulfill my joy by being like-minded. Paul's saying, my joy is full when you guys are doing well. In this case, like-mindedness. Some of you remember a time uh, in our church history when um, we had a, a church breakup and it was a tough time Howard can remember that when uh, people were leaving the church over a doctrinal issue and I can relate to Paul's feeling here you don't sleep you know you're praying for the saints you want to see them settled down you want to see them solid in God and it just tears you apart inside until it's over, and everybody's like-minded again. says in Psalms uh, how pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in unity. I can tell you from personal experience. Amen. That's great. Praise God for the unity here now among the brethren. But when, So obviously there was a problem at Philippi in this area, and, and Paul said, I, I can't really have joy until you guys are, are thinking one thing, you know, you're together on things. And, of course, uh, the like-mindedness he's talking about here is the mind of Christ. And he goes on to explain that. And, actually, you know, we've been talking here about Christian empathy and uh, relating to others, helping others, serving others. We just read right past the secret on how to do it. I don't know if you caught it or not. But it's right here. I can stand up here and say, you know, we all need to live for others. Isn't that right? You know, Jesus says that. But um, when it comes right down to it, number one, too often, tends to get the attention. And Paul says the secret to that, the key, it's right here. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. That's it. There's the key. You see, Paul has been doing that, hasn't he? Look, when he's out there floating in the deep in the Mediterranean, you know, he's either going to say, that's it, man, I've had it with this ministry. Or he's saying, you know, it's worth it. Because those saints are better than I am. They deserve this. 
Now, let's be careful there because let's be honest. It's, it's awfully hard to look around and say, yeah, everybody here is better than me. Uh, I don't think so. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say they are. That's the key. He says, esteem them better than yourself. What does that mean? That means you decide, you mentally make the decision, they are better than me. Now, if you're not a Christian, you're not going to do that. You have no motivation to do that. And if you think that's like God's giving you a tall order, well, that's okay. Because he goes on to say, that's what Jesus did. Jesus came to this planet as a man, went to the cross and bore, listen, your sins, all of them. Why would he do that? Because he esteemed you. He judged you better than himself. You're not better than Jesus. He did, it didn't say you are better than him, but he put himself in the position to where he's looking at you and saying, no, 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 better for me to suffer for those sins than him or her. Praise God he had that attitude, huh? That's the mind of Christ. It's liberating. For us as sinners, you know, look, he had to, <laughs> he had to make an infinite stoop to, to adopt that attitude because he is better. And is he ever? Okay. But he put himself in the place where literally he's looking up at us. It's incredible. Look, for us, it's a lot easier. <laughs> and uh, here's the starting point right here. In lowliness of mind. If you say, I'm kind of struggling with that, Rick. You know, I have to be honest. I think I'm better than most folks. Ask God to show you your sin again. Maybe you've forgotten. Pray about it. Say, God, you know, I've forgotten what a dirty, rotten sinner I am. I, I remember when I was saved, I saw it loud and clear. Help me see it again. And he'll do that. And when he does that, you know what happens? All of a sudden, there's this fog that comes and clouds everybody out as far as their sin. And you just see yourself. And all of a sudden, really, you begin to look up to other people. And they're worth the effort all of a sudden. It's great. And man, is it ever liberating. You don't have to worry about yourself anymore. So that's it. In lowliness of mind. And if you're having trouble with that lowliness of mind, say, God, show me my sin. And then at that point, esteem, judge, decide that others are better than yourself. And uh, remember, he's saying, let this mind be in you, which was also... In Christ Jesus. And look how far it drove him to the cross. Okay, uh, just a few more quotes here. Uh, right here in the same chapter, verse 17. So it's in light of this. It's right after this section where he describes Christ's great stoop that he says this in verse 17. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad. And rejoice with you all. See, with that statement, he's demonstrating what he just preached to them. You see. Because uh, who's greater? Uh, the drink offering that's poured out and, you know, it's hot and it goes up in a vapor. Or the one that the drink offering is poured out on. Well, it's, it's the uh, believers that, life, that Paul is pouring his life out on. Because he's wasted. You see, he's poured out. He's demonstrating that he's esteeming them 
better than himself. He couldn't have picked a better example, the drink offering. Uh, they had that on the bronze altar. They'd, they'd heat that thing up, man, to where it would consume a cow, you know? That's pretty hot. So imagine coming over with uh, liquid and pouring it on the bronze altar. It's gone. It's gone. And he says, if that's what it takes, if that's what my life is going to be, it's just going to, you know, uh, be used in your lives for a, a moment and then it's gone. That's great. I'm happy with that. That's what he says. He says, I will be glad and rejoice about that. Okay, uh, finally in uh, Philippians, got one and then one in first says Philippians four. A wonderful little phrase here. Just one uh, verse one. He says, therefore, my beloved, beloved and long for brethren, my joy and crown. So stand fast in the Lord, beloved. Isn't that great? I love it. He calls them his joy from the heart. He means that. He says, if I have joy, you're it. Um, I've quoted it many times. I just love that verse that uh, John writes. He's, he's got the same heart as Paul for the saints in his uh, third epistle. He says, I have no greater joy than this, than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Isn't that good? He says, I have no greater joy than this. So he's saying, now, if we went around and said, what makes you the most excited? You know, we might have some interesting answers. Bowling over 200, swimming with sharks, you know, hopefully serving Christ. John said, I have no greater joy than this, than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Notice he didn't say to see my children are walking in the truth. I like it when I hear secondhand from somebody, you know, those believers over at so-and-so, man, they are honoring the Lord. That makes them excited. I have no greater joy than this. If you're a parent here, you can relate to this because the closest to this, uh, this, this kind of empathizing with the success and joy of others is what a parent feels with their children, or at least they should. Right, parents? You know? Uh, you have kids and God puts something in your heart, whether you're a Christian or not, that just you're so excited when they do well and you want them to do well so much that you'll do whatever it takes to get them there. Right. To help them do well. And when they don't do well, oh, man, you're devastated. You know, you think about it at work and you'll do anything you can to help them. That's what we're talking about here. It's, it's like a parental empathy. That's why he's saying over and over again, little children. In fact, in this last passage in 1 Thessalonians, uh, he uses both roles, mother and father, to describe his relationship with the saints at Thessalonica. 1 Thessalonians, another right turn to uh, chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 7. He describes uh, how he was among them. We were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So, affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also 
our own lives because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil for laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preached to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses and God also. How devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children. That you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. There it is. You could sum up Paul's life right there. He just has this burning desire for all the believers to be walking worthy of God. And, and he's comparing it to the burden of a mother or a father. In Colossians, he says that he strives, and the words he uses are so strong, striving uh, with the working of God in him to present every man complete in Christ. By the way, uh, men, we're talking about eldership here in some sense also. And it says in the Bible that he who desires to be an elder desires a good work. That's what we're talking about. But we're not going to exclude the women. Let me, let me uh, say something here. We're not on Mother's Day yet. But the ladies have a special place in all of this. In a sense, probably more than the men, women can combine this wonderful parental empathy we've been talking about with Christian empathy. First Timothy 2 says this, and it starts off like, what are the women left to do? Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Sounds pretty bleak. Can't teach, can't preach. But then he says this, and there's a wonderful phrase in here. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. And people have, as you can imagine, done torture with that phrase, saved in childbearing. God is not saying that, uh, number one, she's guaranteed going to survive childbirth. Sometimes uh, a Christian woman does die giving birth. Doesn't mean she's going to be saved from hell in giving birth to a child. I think Bill hit this one on the head when he said, she's saved uh, from anonymity. And in fact, uh, a woman given a child really has more of an effect on the life of a Christian man or woman than a, a man does in some respects. Let me put it this way. We preach a sermon one hour a week to a group. You'd like to think that all lives are changed, you know, all, all sins are stopped and, and all backward courses are reversed. It doesn't happen that way. One hour a week. You teach a class one hour a week. Usually you're fighting the downward trend of entropy and spirituality. It's, it's necessary. It's good. But it's one hour a week. You disciple a guy. You meet with him one hour, maybe two hours a week. A mother at home with her kids, if she has the, the privilege of being at home with her kids, 
hours a day. Godly input. There are examples in the Bible and in the history of the church, of course. Um, One of my favorites, of course, is Hannah uh, in the Old Testament. Listen to uh, her prayer. For this child I prayed, she says, and the Lord has granted me my petition, which I asked of him. Therefore, I also have led him to the Lord. I like that. He's on loan. But listen to what she goes on to say. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. (laughs) It's not a loan. That's a gift. She gave her son to the Lord. And God blessed it. Timothy. Paul writes about uh, Timothy's mother and grandmother. Interestingly. When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois. That's all we ever hear about this dear woman. Grandma Lois. That was her name. And your mother, Eunice. And that's all we ever hear about her. Now, Paul is not saying that because your parents are Christians, you're going to be a Christian. No. And he's not saying that uh, because Timothy's uh, mother and grandfather uh, mother were Christians, he's a Christian. No. But he is saying that their influence in your life played the major part in you being who you are today. One of the uh, best-known examples in the history of the church, of course, is Susanna Wesley. I think a lot of you have maybe even read about her. John Wesley and Charles Wesley, you know, famous men who changed the church in general. Of course, you'd never know it from the Methodist denomination today, but uh, when they first started, man, they were godly men. The interesting thing is, I don't know if you know this, her husband was... (laughs) I don't know how to, I'll put it nicely. He was irresponsible. Uh, it was a single-handed task on her part. For some reason, he felt led to write a commentary on Job, which is interesting because the guy was in and out of jail for debt. They never had enough money to live on, so she was faced with that every day. And I, it, for some reason, I guess he felt led to write about the sufferings in the Christian life, which his wife could have written a lot better book about than him. His, his commentary is lost and forgotten. He's forgotten. But uh, if you know anything about the history of the church, you know about Susanna Wesley and her raising uh, her children for God and particularly John and Charles. So in a way, I'll tell you, I, I envy the women. I tell you, I, I don't have that time. I'm working out at the lab and I have interactions with people. But... Uh, you women, in particular, you mothers, I'll tell you, you, you have an indelible impact on the church in raising children for God. And I'm testifying from experience with my own wife. It's, you cannot calculate the effect that you have on the church. Well, <clears throat> however big or small our impact, this is what God wants for us, living for others. But it's not going to happen until we have that uh, Christian empathy. It's the love of God shed abroad in our hearts. It's the mind of Christ that literally drives us to help others and serve others. I told you I was going to give you another example later of what to do with your life if you decide to have a good time instead. There was the 101 things to do. Well, in addition to that, there's another New York Times bestseller. It's called 1,000 Places to See Before You Die. 
You heard of that one? Yeah? Okay. And here's the blurb on that. Packed with recommendations of the world's best places to visit, on and off the beaten path, 1,000 places to see before you die is a joyous, passionate gift for travelers. And around the world, continent-by-continent listing of beaches, museums, monuments, islands, inns, restaurants, mountains, and more. You know what's wrong with that list? They're all dead. There's no people there. (laughs) You know, honey, let me get a picture of you while you stand in front of that marble statue, you know? Christ saved us for people. He came to save people. They're eternal. They're the only thing that's eternal, except for the word of God. Christians need to come out with their own version of these books, you know? 1,000 acts of love to do before you meet Christ. That'd be good, you know, with a little checklist. Like Paul, let this mind be in you. A deep empathy for others rooted in the love of God. 1,000 ways to demonstrate it. There's more than that. Praying for others, praying with others. Sorrowing with those who sorrow, rejoicing with those who rejoice. Sharing the gospel. Sharing your testimony, showing acts of kindness, discipling someone, shepherding others, raising children for his glory. The list goes on and on. That's what life is all about. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your son who lived everything we've been talking about and more. Thank you that he saw us in our plight and came and gave himself for us. That now we have only heavenly bliss to look forward to because of what he was done, because he was moved with compassion for us. Lord, in the time we have left, whether we're old or young, may we make our lives count for him. It is true there's only one life and may it be lived for Christ and count for eternity. We ask it in his precious name. Amen.